Well, good morning, Gospel Hope, and welcome back to our series through the book of Philemon that we're calling Reconciled. So last week, uh, Rod and I were able to share a message from this short epistle, and today we're going to run back through the whole book with a slightly different lens on. Uh, we'll say more about that in a moment, but I hope today we are encouraged to be brothers and sisters in Christ who really pursue reconciliation. So Rod, why don't you kick us off with a word of prayer and let's jump right in. Absolutely. Um, Father God, um, our hearts are primed to hear from you. Mm -hmm. We have just utterly enjoyed walking through this particular book packed with so many gospel themes and uh, um, allusions to to the great work of Christ to, to call us into reconciliation. And we look forward to how you are equipping us and speaking to us as Gospel Hope Church to prepare us, Lord God, to be just a beacon of hope uh, in a community, in a time, Lord God, where our culture is experiencing uh, a phenomenal level of division and brokenness. Mm -hmm. So Lord God, use us for your glory. Um, to edify your people, to build up your church, and to also be a beacon of hope uh, that reconciliation is possible in days like today. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, um, in 1933, there were several things going on in our nation, one of which where we were in the middle of the Great Depression. But not only in the middle of the Great Depression, we had also just experienced a massive migration of over 300,000 new residents moving into the California area on the heels of the gold rush. As a result of this increase in population density uh, and also kind of a decrease in economic solvency, there are many different things going on in the nation at that time, but one that you might find quite phenomenal was actually the building of the Golden Gate Bridge. Now, the Golden Gate Bridge, for many of us who, I guess, live here maybe on the East Coast, just represents a, a nice photo op, maybe something on our bucket list. But it is quite a phenomenal feat of both architecture and engineering led by a man named Joseph Strauss. Now, Joseph Strauss uh, had the winning bid that, to come in and actually lead a team to build this Golden Gate Bridge. But that initiative was met with some opposition. The military felt like if anyone tried to build a bridge across the, uh, this stretch of water where uh, the Pacific Ocean runs into the San Francisco Bay, that it would then inhibit large ships, specifically naval vessels, from being able to effectively dock there and maybe put our country at risk. Others had difficulty fathoming how something like this would be financed during the Great Depression because obviously the dollar was at risk and so many of our citizens at that time were kind of circling the wagons and just figuring out how to fend for themselves. What room is there for innovation and trying to do something that's never been done before? From an environmental perspective, the waters in that area were over 400 feet deep, but also the gaps or the gap or the chasm between Marin County and San Francisco to the south was over three miles wide. And so the bridge that needed to be built would have to be over 4,000 feet long. This was a mammoth exercise and a mammoth undertaking. But why would anybody want to do this? Well, Joseph Strauss and his men and groups of others went on to do this despite even environmental uh, issues like fog that would result in ships sometimes running into the trusses that were being built. Because of the depth of the water, sometimes it was difficult to effectively drill. 
also due to some of the environmental uh, conditions, there would be men who would often lose their lives. As a matter of fact, 11 people died in the process of building this bridge. Well, at the same time, the automobile is coming into uh, popularity and more and more people are driving cars as a primary means of transportation. And so there are all of these forces that are competing with and also complementing the prospect of doing this. But from an engineering and architecture perspective, there had never been a bridge of this size before. The bridge, once complete, was over 740 feet high and also over 4,200 feet long. This had never been done. The suspension bridge of this type required uh, that there be 27,000 strands of wire just to make one of the cables. It is said that if you took all of the cable necessary to suspend the Golden Gate Bridge, that it would actually stretch out to be over 80,000 miles in length. This is a massive undertaking. And there were many people who felt like it was totally inconceivable to build something at this time. But for others, it was considered to be totally unacceptable to live under the status quo. You see, with the emergence of the automobile and, and also to try to reach other people on the other side of the bay, there was no real practical connection other than uh, kind of a dinky ferry system to move your car across. This was unacceptable also in light of the fact that so many different people had moved into the area, they needed a way to access these other regions of the same state that they live in. And so for Joseph Strauss and his team, what others thought was totally inconceivable, he and his men thought was well, totally unacceptable to live under the current status, or the status quo, as we call it. Bridge builders have to embody this, not just because of the architectural nature of the Golden Gate Bridge and all of the things that it brought to the table, but when we talk about bridge builders today, I think that's a mindset that we're also going to hear over and over again. If we're going to be real bridge builders, we have to be people who says, regardless of how insurmountable the obstacles of getting from one side of the cultural gap or one side of the gap, whether it be ideological or political, that to stay with the status quo is totally unacceptable, regardless of how inconceivable bridging the gap might actually be. Yeah, stepping into that space, not just in an architectural standpoint, but in a spiritual, relational standpoint, man, repairing broken relationships can be hard work. We all know that. We've all felt that. Yeah. And yet when you do that, man, the payoff can be wonderful. And, and, and here's the kicker. The Lord himself calls his people to step into that bridge-building mentality. Here's how Jesus himself put it in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, the bridge-builders, if you will, for they will be called the sons of God. In other words, to put it very simply, a concern for reconciliation reflects the Father's character. That is, when you care about reconciled, right relationships, you are acting like a child of God because our Father cares about reconciled relationship. And Rod, if we're honest, boy, right now, in our cultural moment, we need bridge builders, do we not? We do. I mean, did you happen to see the presidential debates? Mm. I mean, our country is divided like never before. Mm. I hope that, that us saying that over and over again isn't becoming old hat. It's mm. real, and we should have seen that front and center in the way that uh, those debates went down. Mm -hmm. And so we know that there's a huge chasm and a huge gap in our country that needs to be crossed. Mm -hmm. We need bridge builders yeah. like never before. And this is once again why the book of Philemon is so relevant for us today. Uh, if you were with us last week and you heard the story of Philemon, the master, and Onesimus, the runaway slave, uh, we saw that because of Christ, 
real reconciliation was possible. There was a possibility because of the work of Jesus to bring these two kind of conflicting parties together. A real reconciliation can happen because the gospel unifies. It made Philemon and Onesimus family. The gospel transformed. It changed the character of both of these men. And the gospel empowered it. It gave them the ability to forgive one another. But this week, we want to kind of take off those theological lenses and put on more practical lenses and look at what the Apostle Paul did through this story to really be that bridge. He stepped into the gap between Onesimus and Philemon and said, hey, I need to help these two brothers in Christ be reconciled. And we need to remember this, that nobody had beef with the Apostle Paul. Nobody was upset with him. Onesimus was upset with him. He was rejoicing that he had become his spiritual father. Philemon wasn't upset with him. Paul was his dear friend. And yet, and yet, Paul felt motivated to, in one sense, step into the gap, put himself at risk, and build a bridge. Why? I mean, what would motivate Paul, in one sense, to be a bridge builder and put himself in harm's way? Well, I think we're given a clue over in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 18, where Paul describes his ministry. Look at these words very carefully. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. And notice this, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So Paul saw his apostolic calling, his ministry to the church, as a ministry of, of reconciliation. Now, certainly, this first meant that Paul was calling people to have a right relationship with God. But I think the overflow of that is Paul also desired not only people to be reconciled to God, but to be reconciled with one another. Uh, Or if I could simplify that, it would be this. Those who experience reconciliation with the Father care about reconciliation in the family. Uh, suppose, Rod, you and I were um, sitting at a Thanksgiving dinner. That's coming up around the corner here. And yeah. we, we were gathered with some friends and family. And, you know, we're having a good meal of, what's your favorite dish at Thanksgiving? Actually, it's dressing. Dressing. Y'all really call it stuffing. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, I like anything where you put the gravy on it. I mean, okay. I, I mean, the more gravy I can put on it, the better. Anyway, yeah. so let's say yeah. we're sitting here, we're enjoying a good meal, and then some sort of disagreement breaks out at the table. And I mean, and it starts to get heated. And I mean, people are shouting and yelling, and you get involved, Ron. I mean, yeah. you are hot and bothered. I mean, this guy is flinging even the beloved stuffing or dressing, whatever you prefer. He's flinging it all over. I mean, it is a complete disaster. Well, after this all happens, Rod, you come back to the host of the event, and you say, oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. And the host says, oh, Rod, it's no problem. Thanks for asking forgiveness. Did, did you talk to your other family members and and friends about the incident and you look at them and very kind of cavalierly say who cares about them Mm. i don't care about them i just wanted my relationship to be right with you i don't give a rip about what they think you know we hear that story and and all of us instinctively we say well that's not right like you can't like care about reconciliation just on one level and not on other levels and that is what the gospel teaches us we can't care about right relationships vertically and not care about them horizontally. Even John says it this way, like you, you can't love God who you haven't seen and not love your brother who you have seen. Right. Uh, to put it plainly, believers, if you're a follower of Christ, you should have a, a reconciliation reflex. Hey Rod, can you look right over there for a minute? Okay, you didn't know that was coming, was it? No, I didn't. No, no I didn't prep him for it or anything. But the idea is this. I didn't have to tell Rod what to do. He just knew what to do. 
there was a reflex in him that says, when a ball comes flying at me, my role is to catch it. And, and brothers and sisters, when broken relationships come flying at us, our impulse should be towards reconciliation. We should have this reflex in us that says we are made by Christ to be bridge builders. We want to step into the gap and be people who seek to, to, to pursue reconciliation. Uh, which really leads me to my point, or our point this morning, and it's this. We must strive to build bridges of reconciliation. I don't want you to have to preach with that, Rod, so you can throw that out. Bob. There we go. Thank you. Thanks. So, Rod, you want to kick us off with some of the things that we see yeah. in the life of the Apostle Paul here. We, we noticed four things that right. Paul practiced in order to be a gospel bridge builder. And one of them was actually just acknowledging the reality. I want to walk you through a couple of passages where we see Paul acknowledging the reality of some things that exist between Philemon and Onesimus in their relationship as a mediator, or as a bridge builder. Now I want you to hear this, that as a bridge builder, Paul can recognize both the grace and the gaps that live in both the lives of Philemon and Onesimus. Mm -hmm. Notice that unwillingness to, so to speak, to pick a team other than picking the side of the gospel. So he can recognize gaps equally in both their lives. Well, where does he do that? In verses 4 through 7, it says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, talking about Philemon, because I hear of your love and your faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward the saints. Mm -hmm. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Mm. Paul recognizes that there is great grace at work within the life of Philemon, and he is actually refreshed by it. Mm. But verses 8 through 10 also reveal that he can also see some gaps in his life. Look at this, verses 8 through 10. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, so there's a right thing to do that has not been done. Mm -hmm. And he recognizes that absence of the right thing to do or the potential absence of the right thing to do as a gap within Philemon's life. So Paul can equally recognize both with grace and truth the grace and the gaps that exist in Philemon's mm -hmm. life. But look at verse 16. He can also recognize grace in Onesimus' life. No longer as a bondservant, but more, uh, excuse me, no, no longer as a bondservant, but now as more than that, receive him as a beloved brother, especially to me and how much more to you. He recognizes that Onesimus has a grace on his life to be of great gain and benefit to both him, Paul, and also to Philemon. But he also recognizes that there's some gaps on the table potentially in Onesimus's life when you look at verse 18. In verse 18, he says, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. So Paul is already prepared to understand that there maybe was a theft that we talked about last week, and there was definitely kind of a breaking of relationship or some kind of breaking of even a law potentially in the way that Onesimus left in his relationship with Philemon. Mm. And so what we recognize is that Paul can, again, as a bridge builder, and we too as bridge builders, need to be able to equitably recognize in the lives of those that we're trying to facilitate reconciliation when God gives us that opportunity, recognize both grace and gaps. That's the job of a, bri a bridge builder. Now, notice that Paul in neither episode 
demonizes the other brother. Mm -hmm. He recognizes grace and gaps without necessarily calling them demons mm -hmm. or without necessarily assailing their character. Mm -hmm. And so Paul recognizes that. And where would Paul have gotten this kind of attitude from? Mm -hmm. I believe that Paul wouldn't have gotten this notion from the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider for a moment some of the most popular stories from Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus and the rich young ruler there in Matthew chapter 19, verses 15 through 22. The young man approaches Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, you need to keep the law. You need to, to honor God. And the rich young ruler goes through a series of the laws and says, I've kept all of these from my youth until now. What else do I lack? And Jesus says, well, I want you to sell all of your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor and come and follow me. And the young man kind of drooped in that moment because he had great possessions. And so Jesus recognized a gap in his life amid all of the graces. While he had great horizontal relationships with his fellow man, he still held deeply or held closely to his treasure on earth more than he did treasure with his father in heaven. And then when the disciples overheard this, something very powerful happened. Jesus says, it would be easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are shaken by this, and they say, well, then who can go to heaven? It seems like it's impossible. And Jesus says, you know what? There are things that are impossible with man that are not impossible with God. So even in pointing out the rich young ruler's gaps, Jesus gives hope. Jesus gives hope. And this is kind of the nature of Jesus' ministry on and on. Uh, when Jesus meets with Nicodemus, right, the famous Pharisee who comes to him in the middle of the night, he says, man, you are a ruler within Israel, but yet there's something that you don't know, that if you want to be born, you have to be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. And he spent time with Nicodemus, explained to him where his gap was, despite the fact that he was a very learned man and a leader within Israel. Mm -hmm. The Bible goes on to show us multiple skirmishes of Jesus with the Pharisees, and you'll notice that many times over, as Jesus argued or and debated or engaged with the Pharisees, he was always very careful to land the plane on this one central issue. My issue isn't with you being a Pharisee, it's with the fact that you operate and live in hypocrisy. Jesus attacked that particular issue, but not necessarily denigrated the person. Now, what we find to be interesting about that is Jesus didn't just do it to some of these audiences around him, he also did it to Peter. You remember that famous conversation in Matthew chapter 16, uh, beginning with verses 17 through uh, 23, where Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter got the right answer. And Jesus says, you're right. And upon this rock, or upon that confession, that cement of that confession, I'm going to build my church. Peter was celebrated as the great grace that was at work within his life. He says, flesh and blood didn't give that answer to you. It was my father in heaven who opened your eyes to that truth. But do you know that just six verses later, it was, it was Jesus who had to turn around and check his own disciple who he just complimented because he didn't understand the nature of his resurrection and that he go, had to go to be with his father. And he had to say, hey, get thee behind me, Satan. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus had this wonderful practice of always speaking with grace and truth, and he could balance them evenly, never attacking the person. This is the very nature of a bridge builder. I want you to note this, that Paul, excuse me, that Jesus could easily point out a person's grace and their gaps, but never to polarize them, but rather to pull them back toward truth. Mm -hmm. That was always his way or his reason for pointing out grace and gaps. Mm -hmm. Not to polarize, but to pull them toward the truth. 
And I think something else that is significant to note about Jesus, and just so that we understand that it isn't Jesus versus Pharisees, but Jesus against hypocrisies, is this. Do we recognize that one of Jesus' fiercest opponents would later become his foremost apostle mm -hmm. in the Apostle Paul? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is the that is bridge building exemplified. Mm -hmm. That's master's level. That's PhD level bridge building <laughs> when we talk about the Lord Jesus being able to take one of his fiercest opponents in a Pharisee and make it one of his foremost apostles in the growth and building of the church and advancing the gospel. Amen. Uh, but not only did Paul exemplify acknowledging the reality, he also in this epistle addressed the issue. Uh, Paul showed his commitment to reconciliation by, by taking this possible division head on. He didn't pretend that there was no elephant in the room. He ran towards the tension rather than away from it. Uh, stop and think about it for a minute. Uh, Onesimus comes to Paul. You know, he's far away, and we're in the age pre-social media, pre-instant communication. Paul could have easily said to Onesimus, hey, hey, bro, you just stay here with me. You take care of my needs. This is going to be fine here. Or he could have said, hey, Onesimus, you keep moving, but don't go back to Colossae. That's a potential firestorm waiting to happen. You just right. move it along. But, but no, what does he do? Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon. Why? Because he was burdened for reconciliation. And, and, and we read that in verse 8. Look at what it says. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I am sending him back to you. I am sending my very own heart. If I could take some liberties here and, and give you the RLT, the Ryan Living Translation here, mm. and just kind of tell you what, what I think is behind what Paul's saying. He's kind of saying something like this. Philemon, I know Onesimus wronged you, and, and I know that under the law, you probably have every right to take some sort of justice or seek vengeance. But, but, but Philemon, Onesimus is a changed man. He's trusted in the gospel that you believe, and now he is your brother. So receive him as such. Bring him back to you. Let reconciliation have the final word in your relationship. Uh, Paul doesn't simply ignore the issue, nor does he respond to the issue in, in worldly anger. Rather, he urges all parties involved to embody, like Jesus, grace and truth. And this is a timely reminder. Too often today in our polarized society, uh, we, even believers, respond to potentially divisive issues in one of two extremes. So sometimes we can see a potential divisive issue and we can respond with silence. Many godly believers, and I'm speaking particularly right now to my white brothers and sisters in the Lord. Uh, you truly love Jesus. And so you look out at our community and you see something divisive. You see an injustice. You see racial tension. And, and your heart really, truly grieves about that. But then for some reason or another, you remain silent. Maybe you don't know the right things to say. Maybe you're afraid of offending. I don't know the reasons, but sometimes we respond to injustice or broken relationships with silence. Now, I'm certainly not arguing in any way that everybody needs to become a social media influencer or hold a press conference every time that they see something broken in the world. But what I am arguing, and I think it's in keeping with the principles of Scripture, 
that when things happen, when broken relationships are around us, we should leverage whatever influence we have to really speak into those issues in a godly way. Over in James chapter 1, we read this. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen. Now, that's absolutely true, but we shouldn't stop there. It also says we should be slow to speak. That is, there's sometimes, on some occasions, when issues arise, when broken relationships rear their ugly head, when we need to speak into them. To put it plainly, bridge builders know that there are times for both silence and there are times for speaking. But there's another error too, Rob. Yeah, bridge builders need to also recognize they may emotionally live on the other end of the spectrum, where there are some that are prone to silence, there are others that their knee-jerk response, their reflex isn't toward reconciliation, but their reflex is toward violence. Mm. And the Bible also equally cautions us that to be angry, but sin not. Don't let the uh, sun go down on your anger. Don't allow anger to occupy a place in our life where we say things that are more injurious than they are helpful. Mm. There are times in our culture, and I'm going to speak to my brothers and sisters uh, ethnically, there are times when we believe that keeping it real is always the order of the day. When our words, like arrows, don't contribute to a reconciliation and they throw up barriers to real conversation around real issues with the people who need to hear us because we've come out in such pointed ways. And if not violence of words, violence in some other ways on the other end of the spectrum. I want to be absolutely clear in suggesting that we're not saying that all white folks are quiet and all black folks are violent. But I think you can really see these two cultural polar opposites working out before us and how people choose to respond. Neither of those postures in their extremes produce reconciliation. That's right. And neither are the mindset of a true bridge builder. Yeah, and the Apostle Paul embodied this once again. Bridge builders saw, seek to solve real problems in the right way. That is, they acknowledge that the problem is real. They don't sweep it on the rug. They don't ignore it. But then they go about handling it in a right way. Or as the scripture says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. You have to be wise. You have to say, what is the situation that I'm in? And then let my words bring a balm, not a poison, to the situation. You know, Rod, um, I don't know if you remember or have ever seen some of those photos or videos from September 11th when that happened. I mean, some of the most moving ones to me are when you see all the people running from those buildings coming down, mm -hmm. and then there's a group of people, these first responders, who are turning and heading right back into the rubble. Yeah. Uh, in a sense, that is how we as Christians should be. That should be our impulse. When there's tension, when there's strife, when there's dangers, we don't, we don't head for the hills, but rather we turn and head into the situation and address the issues with grace. Why? The same reason those first responders went in, because they deeply cared about people. We, in a sense, need to be first responders for the gospel when we see relational brokenness around us. Which brings us to kind of our, our third point there. Absolutely. So how exactly do we reconcile these two reflexes to maybe be silent and violent and move, really move toward being a bridge builder? What has the gospel, what has the Bible given us that helps us to do that? And I believe it is an appeal to the gospel. Let's look at Paul's pattern and the way that he approached this. Paul, obviously, in the way that he approaches this gap between Philemon and Onesimus, obviously was convinced in what I can see here that
that a true bridge builder must have a conviction that there's no greater relational gap that could ever exist between any two people mm -hmm. on any two ideas. There's no greater relational gap than the original gap that existed between us and God. Mm -hmm. And that's what the gospel comes to address. So if the gospel is large enough and powerful enough and transformative enough to address the greatest gap ever known to man between us and God, certainly the gospel has something to say or to speak into when it comes to addressing these great gaps that exist between us and our brothers. So let's look at a couple of Paul's ways that he did this or the way that he depended upon the gospel or appealed to the gospel. Look at verse 10 with me. It says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, mm -hmm. whose father I became in my imprisonment. Mm -hmm. This is a powerful word to, to pick up on in contrast or in comparison to verse 16 when he tells uh, Philemon, receive him no longer as a bondservant, but now receive him as a beloved brother. You often tell the story of when you and Tricia adopted Peyton mm -hmm. and how it was in that moment, he not only received new parents, mm -hmm. but he also received new brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. That gospel ethic is true for us over and over again. The Apostle Paul is leaning into the doctrine or the ideas of adoption. You see, if God is, or, uh, or if God is Onesimus' father, and God is also Philemon's father, then guess what? Onesimus is automatically your brother. Mm -hmm. if, if Onesimus is my son in the faith, and you are also Philemon, my son in the faith, well, guess what? Then you two are brothers. Mm -hmm. And so we see Paul really just pulling down on the, not just the pictures of the gospel, but the power of the gospel to speak into a local broken relationship. But he does more than that. Because, do you see, over and over again, you'll see Paul using what I would call gospel windows and mirrors to help or to imply and point out different areas where uh, Philemon and, 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 um, and Onesimus have kind of shared opportunity. Mm -hmm. So they have a shared need to know God through adoption. But in verse 17, look at this. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. These are just some subtle glimpses of what we know in salvation as imputation, right? Where there is this transfer of status that is only in Christ. He has righteousness that we don't have. We don't have a righteousness of our own. And so the Apostle Paul says, hey, if you receive me as a good fellow, if you receive me as a good guy, would you extend that same status to this one that I'm sending to you? Mm -hmm. So we see another gospel glimpse of how bridge builders lean into or look at the gospel for ways to bring or to have leverage in brokering reconciliation in their local relationships. But we also see the Apostle Paul doing something else in verse 19, and this is super powerful to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay. That is, if he has wronged you, or there's anything that's broken that needs to be fixed or repaid, he says, I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me also your own self. Mm -hmm. I believe here that Paul has in the backdrop of his mind the implications of Jesus Christ being our ransom. Mm -hmm. That is because he gave up his life for us, we are then compelled similarly to give our lives for others, mm -hmm. that there was a payment made on our behalf. And so because of that, this, this whole idea of, of, of Christ being our mediator is in front and center. Uh, consider this. Paul consistently uses, as I would say, gospel windows and mirrors to help uh, uh, Philemon and Onesimus see that their issue is a gospel issue, not just a cultural issue. Mm -hmm. This is much higher than this. Bridge builders, as bridge builders, we never pretend to be a savior because I think you can feel some of that. Is Paul trying to come in and be Jesus? No. 
Bridge builders never pretend to be a savior, but we're constantly pointing people back to the work of the savior. Mm -hmm. And the primary work that I believe Paul is pointing us to here is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, where the Bible says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, that man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Mm. So we see the Apostle Paul, again, not just using, well, yeah, he's using the gospel as his playbook to produce reconciliation between two brothers who have a broken relationship. That's what we do as bridge builders. Mm. And that leads us to our final point. It's simply this. If you're going to be a bridge builder, you have to accept the cost. When Paul stepped into this, he knew that it wasn't going to be free. He knew that it was risky, and yet he did it Anyway, look again at verse number 17 that Rod alluded to in a moment ago. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Verse number 18, and if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul was so committed to reconciliation that he literally put his money where his mouth was. The simple fact of the matter is bridge building cost. This was true of Paul's time, and it's true for today. And what we want to do here briefly is really try to get practical about that and remind you of ways that maybe bridge building will cost you. If you're a person of color, you may in this time find yourself with a great degree of fatigue in just explaining yourself and explaining your positions or explaining some of the areas of the gaps in culture and what you believe to be the solutions. And I would just say that that's the cost. The cost of being a bridge builder is you may have to tolerate uh, uh, or have patience with times and people in culture who need you to help uh, clearly articulate where the gaps are. That's one of the costs that we might pay. Yeah, if you're a white person, a person from the majority culture right now, then uh, man, it's going to cost you at times humbly acknowledging that you have in the past and maybe even now held to ideas that are hurtful to your black and brown brothers and sisters. That's part of the cost of being a bridge builder. You need to be honest with yourself and honest of gaps in your life. There are other times when maybe as a person of color, we may find ourselves put in this dubious position of having to choose between the rights of the life in the womb and life uh, on the right of life outside the womb. Those aren't two competing issues, but unfortunately because of the divisive climate that we live in, you and I may have to pay the cost of saying that we are equally committed to both of those life ethics. And in doing so, you might be branded as an Uncle Tom. You might be branded as a person who's compromised. You might be branded as a person who is, who is, who is trying to straddle the fence. But that's the cost because those aren't issues that Jesus separated. Uh, when you, in this polarized political climate, when you prioritize biblical truth, that the Bible gives us guidance for life and tells us what is right and wrong, and authentic compassion, caring for marginalized and hurting people. It will cost you being thought of as very narrow by some yeah. and being soft by others. There are other moments where, as an African-American or as a person of color, maybe the culture has told you or told us that we automatically must vote one way or the other. And to ever show sympathy, regardless of where you sit on a political aisle, to ever show sympathy or even to see grace in the ideas or the life of a person who might believe or vote differently makes you a traitor, a person who is compromised. And here it is, as believers, 
This is not our home. So the fact that you or I may not feel a distinct political home amongst all of the issues and the policies and the rhetoric that's out there, that's okay because Christ already informed us that that's not our home. And part of our cost is that discomfort. Here's the reality and a big idea from this message. If you're going to be a bridge, you're going to get walked on. That's the nature of a bridge. But we have to accept the cost. And when you read through the epistle of Philemon, Paul does not do this hopelessly at all. He's filled with hope. He's brimming with supernatural confidence. Look at verse 21 again of Philemon. Since I am confident of your obedience, I am writing to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul's optimistic about the power of the gospel to transform people. What fueled this holy optimism? I would argue, as Rod mentioned earlier, that there was a seemingly insurmountable gap between God and man. And yet, in his grace, God sent the God-man, Jesus Christ, to do what only the God-man, the mediator between God and man, could do. Jesus stepped into the gap to repair an insurmountable breach. Here's the idea. We can be reconciled because we have been, we can be reconcilers because we have been reconciled. We know, we have tasted the goodness of reconciliation. We were separated from God. And so now we of all people should be burdened to see other people reconciled both to the Lord and to one another. So you hear all this and, and, and we just want to land the plane today once again with a couple of very practical applications. You might be saying in all of this, okay, well, what do we do? There must be this enormous task that we have to take on to now facilitate reconciliation in our culture. I believe that it starts at the ground level. We need to pursue not just joining a community group, because you can do that in compliance, but pursuing real community. That is doing life, hard life, authentic life, vulnerable life with people that are different from us people that in, that we know believe differently from us, not giving them the emotional stiff arm or trying to keep our distance so we don't have to get involved in tough conversations, but allow ourselves to grow as mediators by growing in relationship with people who we know may live on the opposite end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. We cannot live in little ideological capsules separate from those that make us uncomfortable. Biblical community causes us to connect with those kinds of people. Mm. So not only do we need to commit to community, but we also need to commit to community. And as you look at the beginning of this epistle, before Paul begins kind of his tactics and his strategies and his teaching, he prays. He makes it clear that he has been praying for Philemon and Onesimus and praying for the church and the situation. Brothers and sisters, in this divisive culture, we need God. So let's bathe. Let's saturate. Let's drench all of our efforts to build bridges in prayer. Uh, we need to pray for at least two reasons. One, we need the Lord to guard our hearts because none of us are above those, those wrong responses. None of us are just naturally bent towards reconciliation. We need the Lord to protect us. And then secondly, we need the Lord's favor. We really want people to be reconciled and we believe it's possible because of the work of Jesus. So let's pray that God would give us favor. Gospel hope. We want to be a church that displays the reconciling hope of a God of the gospel. We want to be, a, as the Bible calls us to be, a city on the hill. We want to be, as Rod alluded to at the beginning, a beacon 
that shows that there is hope and life and change and transformation available because of Jesus Christ. Man, this is a time of unique challenge, but it is also a time of unique opportunity. May the Lord grant us favor and use us to be the hope of the gospel that he has called us to be. Can we pray as we just close out? Rod, you want to just round us out with a word of prayer. Father God, we come and we thank you for authentic community is possible. Authentic communion, communion is possible. We thank you that regardless of how insurmountable it may seem or how unpopular it may seem, how large the divide nor how large the gap, that there is no cultural gap, there is no ideological gap that is any greater than the gap that existed between us and you. And you were able, Lord God, to bridge that gap, not barely, but beautifully and wonderfully in your son, Jesus Christ. You deployed us and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that we would also, in our world, bring others to you. Mm. And, in, and in turn, Lord God, allow them to experience communion and unity with their fellow man. Lord God, help us as a church to be a part of not just the conversation, but a part of that execution. Mm -hmm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, Gospel Hope.